Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to our virtual roundtable this Thursday. For those who have missed our previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archive at www.usafmc.org sounds to check out our other programs or to subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast on both Apple and Spotify. This is an interactive discussion today, so if you have any questions at any time, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen, fill out your name and your question, and if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, just click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Tonight at a Democratic National Convention that has redefined the word unique, former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr. will accept the nomination of the Democratic Party as their candidate for President of the United States. He'll do so one night after a woman who is both the first Asian American and African American woman to appear on a major ticket, Senator Kamala Harris, accepted the vice presidential nomination. For those who've watched the convention, they've been hammered over the head with two things, the future looking diverse nature of the Democratic Party and the fact that everyone even tangentially connected to it and several who are connected to the Republican Party want to defeat Donald Trump in November. What else have we learned though? What was the purpose of this convention other than officially nominating a ticket? What is a win for the Democratic Party and its candidates? We have a great panel to help figure out the answer to those important questions and some others today. Our moderator is particularly well-suited to help in getting those answers. As a journalist, Cheryl Bolin is the White House correspondent for Bloomberg's Group of Journalism Properties. She earned a master's degree in communications from American University and has worked for Bloomberg since 1989, covering several government agencies, including the FCC and Congress. We've got a couple great panelists, and Cheryl will introduce those to you. Cheryl, thanks for joining us this morning. The floor is yours. Thank you, Paul. And uh, first, I would like to uh, thank our panelists uh, for appearing here on behalf of the former members of Congress and congressional study groups. Um, we have with us today two great panelists who can really bring light to, to what is happening here in this most unusual year. Um, I, you all have uh, the uh, formal biographies of our panelists, but let me just introduce them briefly. Um, we have Governor uh, Jim Blanchard, who has a very long history of public service, uh, most recently ambassador to Canada, but also two terms as governor of Michigan and then four terms uh, as a member of the House. Uh, a long history with the Democratic Party, and he can tell you more about that uh, during our discussion. We also have with us the Honorable Donna Edwards, who served five terms in the House and also various roles on the House Democratic leadership team. And so to start us all off, um, I'd really love to hear just a few minutes of uh, introductory remarks, impressions of the convention, or anything that's uh, coming to your mind right now. And uh, Governor Blanchard, if you could start us off. All right, I wanna make sure I'm unmuted. <laughs> we can hear you. Great, well, thank you for this opportunity. Um, we have a very distinguished group of of participants in this, uh, listeners, including some of my former colleagues who could easily be doing this as I do it. Uh, I've, you know, been around a while. Some would say I'm older than dirt, but uh, uh, I was elected to Congress 46 years ago. And by the way, our class has, a, we're having a, a weekly meeting now uh, through Zoom to talk about what's going on. And uh, some of, uh, maybe Tim Worth is on this call today. He's part of that. But anyway, uh, I'm excited about this convention, uh, disappointed that we can't be with everybody, but for me, it's my 13th Democratic National Convention, my 12th as a delegate. Uh, I'm excited because I have known Joe Biden for 46 years. He actually came in and campaigned for me when I first ran for office, and I was fortunate enough to be elected to Congress in 1974. And so I've known him all these years. I've seen him in his ups and downs, his defeats, his victories. I work with him on automobile issues, and he's, of course, helped rescue the auto industry as vice president. Uh, and I've worked with him when I was ambassador to Canada. So I, I feel I have a personal stake in this, and I also know Kamala Harris and her husband. Her husband has been a law partner. He's taken a leave, but a law partner of mine. So I'm very excited about this. I, I wondered how the party would handle the technology. And I think under the circumstances, they've done a great 
job. And I've really enjoyed all the speeches. Uh, I view this campaign at this election as the most important since 1864. And I am not exaggerating. I thought I'd seen it all over these years because I started handing leaflets out in 1952 for Adelaide Stevenson as a little kid. This is so unusual. I think a lot of the younger generation doesn't realize how unusual this is and how critical it is to the future of our democracy. It is the most important election in my life. And as I said, I think the most important since Abraham Lincoln got reelected in 1864. Wow. So Congresswoman, <laughs> what are your thoughts about the uh, convention so far? Well, I wasn't around in 1864, but I'm going to take uh, Governor Blanchard's word for it uh, on that one. He wasn't there either. Uh, look, I think this has actually been quite an exciting um, convention in a very unconventional way. Um, it's been interesting to watch because I think so many of the conversations felt have felt very intimate, you know, where somebody literally is in your living room or at your kitchen table. And um, many of the remarks have come across like that. It's been interesting to see the way that the technology has uh, aided but changed uh, the convention. And um, although I don't have uh, Governor Blanchard's long history, I've been to both Republican and Democratic conventions and it always strikes me at the Democratic convention um, the really the diversity of the party. You can see that in a convention hall. And I think that that was conveyed um, online uh, over the last uh, uh, couple of days. Um, and I think it's something that Democrats are embracing and celebrating. And certainly that's true uh, with the nomination um, last night of Kamala Harris as our uh, VP choice and um, will be reflected, I believe, in Joe Biden's remarks um, when he takes the stage this evening. Uh, it's also, I, I met Joe Biden first when he ran for president, I guess, in 1988. I was actually in law school up in, in New Hampshire, and one of my tax professors had been a law school roommate of his. And so we developed a relationship, and then I worked closely with him as a domestic violence advocate and the passage of the Violence Against Women Act. And so it was actually nice last night to see so many of those women and advocates celebrated for the work that Joe Biden did. But I think it's been an eventful uh, convention uh, thus far and successful as can be had in these COVID, uh, COVID times. I think Democrats have made the most of it. Sure, and then we'll explore that just a little bit more here coming up, um, but first, sort of to get us started to, to, to start thinking about conventions. Um, Governor, you, you've, you've seen a lot of these. Um, if you could just set the stage for us, give us a little bit of history. Really what um, our conventions, at least in the past, meant to do, meant to accomplish? What is the goal of, of having a convention? Clearly beyond just simply uh, coming up with a nominee? Well, of course, the conventions are designed to rally the faithful. People come from all over the country, different points of view. They are all under this huge tent, which is an incredibly diverse tent, quite the contrary to uh, the Republican Party. They come to rally the faithful and get ready and energized for the election. With the public, um, the convention's purpose is to introduce the candidates to the public or reintroduce them, like reintroduce Joe Biden. People may think they know him, but they may not know everything about him. This is a chance to do that. Certainly with Kamala Harris, it's that chance. I thought, by the way, she did a great job last night, and it was a totally different vice presidential acceptance speech than we're used to, which was wonderful because it softened her and made her more of a human being rather than a vice president attack dog, which often is what people expect. So I, I was really happy with that. Uh, beyond that, uh, conventions try to create a theme, a theme that people can connect with, rely on. I think our theme is probably building, building back better, dealing with the economy and healthcare, and I hope, of course, global engagement uh, and restoring the soul of America. Those are, I think, our themes. Um, 
and Joe Biden fits that. Uh, he's the man for the moment, in my opinion. But I think uh, th those are some of the things you look for. And I love the speeches, and we could talk about some of those. But I want to hear what Congresswoman Edwards has to say, because she has a generational outlook that would be different than mine. <laughs> well, Congresswoman, what, what do you think about um, past conventions? And, and, and believe me, we'll get to this new one in a minute. But, but really, I'm trying to compare and contrast here a little bit. What is what is the past meant to accomplish, and and then we'll compare it to to what's happening now. Well, it's so interesting because when I um, began my congressional career, I remember um, what called me to action. We're looking at um, the runs of Shirley Chisholm for uh, president of the United States. I mean, that's what I remember as a little girl. But I also remember Barbara Jordan's speech on the convention floor and um, how that moved me. And I quote it all the time because she talked about the common good. And I got that sense um, this last several days that there was a call to action for the common good for all of us in one purpose. It's the reason that we saw you know, Republicans coming forward for uh, Joe Biden and the very diversity, uh, political and ideological diversity of the party. And, uh, and then I worked on the Jesse Jackson campaign in 1988 and uh, remember the energy around that campaign leading up uh, to, the, uh, to the convention. And I felt like I was really a part of that as a young person. And I think that, you know, sure, there's a lot of rallying that goes on in the convention halls. You want to get those delegates excited to go back into their states and to turn that vote but it really is speaking to the public. And this is where I think this convention this year in this very unconventional way um, spoke to individual Americans in their homes in a way that past conventions where the focus is on the, the funny hats and the noise and the, you know, and the crowd, um, that we didn't have that this year, but what we had were individuals um, sitting next to us on the living room sofa. And I think that um, it showed a part of the party that was actually quite different than we've seen in past conventions. Governor, you look like you want to comment on that. <laughs> no, I want to add something that related to what the Congresswoman has mentioned, because I do remember Jesse's speech in 88. I was a Dukakis person. I was the platform chair, but stayed neutral until the convention. But it was a memorable speech that Jesse gave. Uh, but the conventions introduced new faces. You know, I watched the TV in 1956 as a kid watching John F. Kennedy try to become vice president. He didn't make it as a nominee with Stevenson, but he became a national, nationally known person with this beautiful family, and he gave a concession speech. I fell in love with John Kennedy from that moment on. Obviously, uh, there was a great moment in 1988 when... Congresswoman was there with Jackson. I was there as platform chairman. And I had re recruited my pal Bill Clinton to travel the country with me on the platform. And he was selected to nominate Mike Dukakis. And I told all my colleagues from Michigan, I don't know what's going to happen with our election. We're going to have a tough time with uh, Governor Dukakis, who I really admired. But I can tell you this, you're going to see a future president, I believe, in Bill Clinton when he speaks. Well, Clinton got up in 1988 and he talked endlessly. He still today will tell me it wasn't that long. He really, <laughs> it seemed that long. He talked endlessly. It was really bad. And when he said in conclusion, people started cheering. All my friends in Michigan lined up. We were seated on the floor to tell me, boy, Blanchard, you really know how to pick a winner. What's wrong with this guy? Anyway, so the rest is history. The next convention, he was the man. Uh, he was the man. And then, of course, when John Kerry selected, and he did, to his credit, Barack Obama to do the keynote in Boston in 2004, that launched a whole movement, historic movement, uh, culminating his election and, of course, his remarkable speech last night. Unbelievable. Uh, and one of the highlights of the convention. Well, and a reminder that, of course, the nation and Democrats were introduced to Kamala Harris because of her speech 
on a convention floor. And so these uh, conventions can have a way of elevating uh, some of those superstars. And you actually saw it over the last, what was really remarkable to me is over the last couple of days, we have really seen some of the rising stars of the Democratic Party, state senators and lieutenant governors and um, you know, uh, you know, a candidate, Stacey Abrams, who ran for um, the governor in, in Georgia. Um, and so that, I think that um, Joe Biden and, and the DNC in this uh, convention process has helped to elevate some of the rising superstars of the Democratic Party. And so our future looks really bright. Yeah, we have the rising, so I will say too, I, earlier this morning, I did a, a, a a uh, webinar, I guess you would call it, with Democrats abroad and the person they wanted to hear from, they had a choice, was Gretchen Whitmer. And the reason I was on this was to introduce her as the governor of Michigan. So you have all these new faces. And I think Joe is bringing forth a couple of new generations of candidates, that, uh, uh, of leaders who could be his children or his grandchildren. Uh, same with me. So this is exciting, as, as Donna said. It really is exciting to see all the talent uh, for the future. So that's just amazing because uh, th there really have been some, some breakout speeches here. But I wanna just kind of refocus a little bit here to talk about sort of maybe the impact this convention is having on the public. And I'd like to hear your views on um, the audience and who, who is the target audience for this convention? Are there undecided voters still out there? Is it designed to appeal to the party faithful? Um, is it designed to appeal to you know, moderate Republicans? Who, who, who is this convention aimed at and do you think they're being effective at it? Wow, I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, we heard, you know, from the first night, uh, Bernie Sanders, who I thought gave a really amazing and um, very clear, clear-minded endorsement of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to bring the progressive wing of the party to make sure that nobody is sitting at home. I think that, you know, we heard then um, from a range of Republicans from, and there was a lot of controversy around that and talk with uh, among Democrats about that. But I thought that it was a wonderful way of saying, you know what, the Democratic Party is a big tent party. Uh, come on in, uh, there's room for, uh, for you. And so speaking to that part of the electorate that may be disaffected with Donald Trump, but doesn't really have a home right now. And then of course, to a whole bunch of young people and others who decided in 2016 that rather than vote, they just sit at home. They weren't gonna come out and vote for Donald Trump, but they didn't come out to vote at all. And I think that, you know, you heard voices who were speaking uh, to those um, voters as well. And so um, this really has been a convention that is, has been showcasing how we pull together a coalitional effort um, to, uh, to run and win on November 3rd. And you could see that, I mean, this quilt that's being built isn't just about, you know, sort of one swatch. It's about a whole bunch of different swatches. And uh, somehow or other, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have managed uh, to pull that together. Yeah, I think, you know, rallying the base is, is key, but the outreach, there's no question that we want to get independence in moderate Republicans. So how many are there? That's probably could be seven or eight percent, a slice of the electorate that could make a huge difference. So I think it was, I was very happy and very significant that John Kasich spoke and Colin Powell spoke. I was thrilled that my colleague at our law firm, uh, Charlie Dent, endorsed Joe Biden yesterday and others. And I think the reality is uh, we need a big table and there are a lot of seats and clearly Bernie Sanders is entitled a seat at the table in my opinion. But some of those moderate Republicans that we count on for support for healthcare, remember John McCain saved Obamacare. Healthcare, global engagement, there's so many things, climate, the Paris Accord, we are gonna need reasonable Republicans. And uh, there are some 
A lot of them have been afraid to surface. Uh, I don't like that. I, I'm upset about it. But even uh, Mitt Romney, you know, stood up during impeachment. So we have to remember that as we go along our way. We do not want to be Simon Pure, but we do need to win, and we do not need to abandon our principles to win. Well, to that point, Governor Blanchard, I think that what you see reflected both in the uh, in the Democratic platform, um, but also in the Biden-Harris agenda, and we've seen this interspersed in the convention, all of these issues that really haven't compromised, in fact, have built uh, toward you know, sort of more uh, progressive and inclusive government reflected there. And that, does, that hasn't meant that we can't still invite people into the party. And that leads me to my next theme here is, is the policy differences and how you see this convention and its speakers uh, addressing uh, the differences with Republicans on policy issues, immigration, the handling of COVID, the economy, race relations, all those issues. Do you believe uh, this convention has, has tackled those issues and, and addressed them appropriately? Well, you know, I think that, you know, part of, um, and I think some of the uh, speakers have said this, I mean, certainly starting with, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren uh, last night, that this isn't about us agreeing on every single detail of every single policy issue, but it's about restoring competence and confidence in the executive leadership so that we can begin to have those de debates on a level playing field with fair rules that everybody understands uh, to push for those policy changes. And so I don't expect that, you know, come November 4th that progressives are gonna uh, come out and say, yes, you know, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, we agree with you on every single approach to healthcare and the climate. But what they will say is, goodness, we've gotten a, pre we have a president and a vice president now that we can work with and push them on the issues that, um, that concern us. And so I think this convention has demonstrated um, that, you know, we've got to get to, uh, to competence and confidence before we can begin to change an agenda. Governor Blanchard, do you have any thoughts on, on the way that policy has been addressed in this convention? I think, uh, you know, with a 91-page platform document, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting that it finessed some of the more uh, incendiary issues. I, th I thought it did a good job. I don't know that anybody will read it, by the way, but that's another matter. But I would say this, too, you know, given the sweep of history, there, there really there really hasn't been much of a difference uh, in the major issues of the so-called progressive wing, or I would have called it the liberal wing of the party and the more moderate people, or I would call the practical wing. Some would say governing wing, but I would say at least practical wing. You know, for example, I was in, elected to Congress in 74. Wow. Uh, one of the first things I did along with a lot of our other freshmen is we signed on to a single pair healthcare system. It was called the Kennedy-Corman Act, sponsored by Ted Kennedy and Jim Corman of California. Uh, more recent years, I've been co-chair with Gina Rimaldo of the Campaign for Free College Tuition. Now, those are two linchpins of Bernie's pitch. They're not much different where, than from where Biden is. So there's much more of a coming together of Democrats than people realize. I think in primaries, in contests, particularly Democratic primaries, the differences get magnified and pretty soon people are all hot off the collar. And I think the press loves, you know this, Cheryl, the press loves a good fight. They really do, especially if it's over something meaningful. Um, and so that gets magnified as well. And uh, my whole thing is let's keep our eye on the prize. We've got to elect Joe. There's, a, as I said, there's plenty of room for everybody. And we can really begin to give our country a new life again. And uh, it's so important from my point of view, obviously. I think probably most Democrats feel that way. Right. And I'd like to get your views. Uh, two really big speeches last night. Obviously, we were, the, the country was introduced to, uh, to uh, Kamala Harris uh, as a vice presidential nominee. But also, uh, former President Barack Obama gave quite a powerful speech last night, and uh, which I think surprised some people. Um, uh, 
Congresswoman, uh, what are your thoughts on, on those two speeches and, uh, and uh, what, what do you believe the impact of those will be? Well, let me start with um, former President Obama, because I think that um, his speech in some ways we all acknowledge was uncharacteristic of him. I mean, there was a power and a palpable um, um, anger and concern that he expressed about the state of our democracy and that he believed it might be slipping away and would indeed slip away uh, if uh, Donald Trump is, is reelected. He expressed, um, I think, what so many Democrats are, are, are feeling, but what a lot of Americans are, are feeling right now. And I thought, I thought it was a speech that went over and was received um, better in the format of last night than we might have heard it in a, an arena full of you know, cheering and adoring um, uh, people uh, because it was a sobering um, speech. And I thought that it was really important that he did it with you know, that backdrop of the words from the Constitution behind him. Um, that, uh, that he recognized that this was an important moment for him to convey um, the seriousness of the moment to, um, to Americans. And I also thought that he made the case against Donald Trump in a way that enabled Kamala Harris to, um, to come forward both to introduce herself, because most Americans don't know her at all, and, um, and then for her to make the closing argument about why we need to elect um, Joe Biden. And so I thought that the two speeches actually worked really well together. And I, you know, looking at Kamala Harris and because she's so engaging and you know, she looked right out you know, into the camera like she was you know, sitting in our living rooms, I thought that we could really feel her in a way that we may not have been able to do, frankly, in a big um, arena format. And it felt like we could applaud what, where we were sitting um, at, at some points in her, in her speech. But I thought the two of them worked effectively in making the case against Donald Trump and for Biden-Harris. And, and Governor, uh, there, there was some criticism, uh, particularly from Republicans this morning, that uh, former President Obama broke some norms by criticizing uh, the sitting president. Well, that's true. It's uh, I've, I've never I, I can't recall um, uh, if the most immediate preceding president ever going to a convention and criticizing and really fiercely attacking the incumbent president. I can't recall that it did break a norm, and as the congresswoman said, it did. Frankly, did Kamala Harris a big favor because then she could present herself in what is a wonderfully positive light rather than having to be out spending her time criticizing Mr. Trump. But bear in mind, Mr. Trump has broken every norm in governance, including just common manners, decency, and civility. But I, I was making a list recently about how we restore honor and integrity to the White House. And you know, it starts with things like you don't attack people who are handicapped. You don't um, attack press and call them names. You, when, you, when you sign a bill that passes by partisan support, you invite both parties to the signing ceremony. That has not happened with this president. I mean, we could list all the norms that Mr. Trump has you know, violated, including conflict of interest, family, nepotism, the emoluments clause. I mean, it is an incredible list. So I was glad that President Obama stepped out of his normal comfort zone and gave us a very fierce analysis as to how important this election is. And then I love the follow-up with Kamala. So I concur with Congresswoman Edwards. Of course, we're of like mind on a lot of this. So I it would be. By the way, earlier I said the progressive wing and the governing wing. I should have said there's a protest wing <laughs> and then there's a practical wing. Well, I'm a progressive and I don't view myself as part of the protest wing. Um, but That's why. <laughs> there is a protest and the practical. <laughs> far apart on issues, but they think they are. 
And uh, uh, generally, though, the practical wing wins and can govern. Um, but they're never going to satisfy the protest wing. And I'm not saying that's why I want to distinguish progressive from, from, from practical, because many people in the progressive movement are the they are not protesters, they're movers and shakers. They're not, they're not interested in complaining for the sake of complaining. They're interested in building a better world. And, and Off there. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, and to pick up on some themes, uh, both of you have mentioned uh, the, the, the new format, obviously the televised online format. Um, and I'd really like to hear your views, is, is this, is this effective? Uh, is it just something we, we have to do in, in the age of COVID? Do you see a return to this type of format or is it important to bring people together? I'd like you to, I'd like to get your thoughts about the format of this year's convention. Well, you know, I mean, I think that there was a lot of hesitation and skepticism about whether it could be pulled off at all. I will say this, the roll call, um, each one of the states showcasing from sea to shining sea and the mountains and the calamari um, was one of the best moments um, for Americans to see the diversity and the breadth and the depth of the nation um, that we could have. I hope we never go back to doing standing roll calls with, you know, you know, somebody in a hat, you know, and ringing a, a bell or something standing uh, in a convention. Um, I love that format. I thought it was a great way for us to experience America and to see the great diversity. And uh, so we may go to some kind of hybrid uh, where we incorporate some of these themes. I think if we learned anything, the need for, you know, one, two and four minute speeches should be the norm um, and I've spoken at a convention before, and I remember the feeling of being in front of that throng and feeding off of their energy, which was really great. Um, but that may not be the best way that we can convey a unified message to the American people. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking maybe there will be some hybrid in the future, but certainly this environment gave Democrats uh, you know, an opportunity to experiment with a different way of communicating with the American people. Mm -hmm. and, and Governor, how important is it to have that in-person contact or is, it, is this online format a good, a good uh, solution? Well, I think Congresswoman is correct. I don't think we're ever gonna go back to the typical roll call I've had too many people, friends of mine, political junkies, you know, former staff, uh, text me, email me saying they love that. We hope we never, we, we hope we keep that a remote uh, roll call showing the country. So I think that's, we're gonna have that going forward. I will say, I, we do need a laying on of hands and we do need to come together as a democratic American family for at least a couple of days, at least, where people can socialize and be with each other. I mean, I will never forget standing on the floor of the convention as a page under the rostrum, rostrum when they introduced Robert Kennedy to, inter to, to speak after they had just done a tribute film to President Kennedy. I'll never forget the feeling there of thousands of people and the cheers it still gives me chills. I'll never forget uh, in New York in 1992 when, when Bill Clinton and Al Gore wound up their, their speeches and their wives came out and families on the stage and we were hearing the music, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. It was, so there are moments here and people will tell you about that when they watched Barack Obama. I actually missed that speech. I was at a symphony honoring Ted Kennedy at that moment. But everyone I talked to said, I had just missed you know, one of the best speeches in history. So I don't want to give that up. And that would be crazy. And I will also tell you that in everything I've worked on in my life, in Congress, ambassador, governor, nothing really serious was done remotely. Um, and I don't think it could have been done by Zoom or, or email or Facebook, really, there were one-on-one -on -one important conversations or one-on-two, two-on-two 
to deal with very sensitive issues. So I don't think we should exaggerate the importance of, of, of uh, the current technology. It does a lot of wonderful things like we're doing now, but it's no substitute for real people dealing and creating real solutions. Okay, and, and not to take away from that, but how important is it to have that balloon drop? I, th this is what I was just gonna say. We definitely should not lose the balloons. In fact, I think last night I was kind of disappointed after Kamala Harris's speech that somehow they hadn't figured out to at least drop something out of the ceiling uh, for her as she was applauding the big screen of, uh, of viewers on, online. Um, and, you know, and of course, we don't have to go back that far to know the importance of that kind of in-person, you know, contact and what those moments mean. I mean, Hillary Clinton is the first, um, you know, woman nominee of a major party accepting the nomination and standing on that stage. And I remember her in her white um, suit and the crowds were just going, you know, nuts. Um, I'm getting chills actually right now just talking about it. But those are really important moments and they do help to rally not just the delegates, but to rally the nation. And so I think that we will go to some kind of hybrid where we mix the best of both of these worlds um, so that we can reach as many Americans as possible in conveying a message about the direction that Democrats see uh, for the future of the country versus our opponents. Mm -hmm. Now, but what about the impact um, nationwide? Um, are people tuning in? Are you hearing that this is working, This the online format, the speeches? Have there been any particular standout moments? Is social media taking over? What, what's, what, what are your views? What are you hearing about impact? Well, no, I, I, um, the people I'm hearing from now are the faithful and they're energized. So that's good. Uh, they weren't necessarily all energized. They were energized to get rid of Trump, but they weren't necessarily energized to, for the other Democrats. Oh, I kind of like Joe, but, uh, the Jill Biden speech, by the way, was huge in mm -hmm. introducing Joe. That was a huge speech, uh, along with President Obama, really important. And so was Hillary's. I mean, there's so many. How about Gabby Gifford? I mean, gosh, doesn't that, that is incredible. I mean, there are so many good ones. And so I think this format is generating great excitement on the part of Democrats and active Democrats. It remains to be seen as to what that will, what impact that will have on the general public but it's sure charging our engines and that's really important. We'll know about public reaction. You know, there's a lag time in polling. We'll probably know in about 10 days what the, what the public fallout is for what we've done, but hopefully it'll be positive. I think it will be, but you know, we exaggerate the impact of these things. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think certainly if you're an activist Democrat, I mean, we need you at the table. We need you, you know, making phone calls in an environment where People can't go and knock on people's doors. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done. And we need those, you know, party loyalists ready to do the work, even as it's redefined in this environment. I mean, I've been hearing from so many people uh, that they're worried about how do they do effective voter registration? How do they do effective um, get out the vote, making sure that people get those mail-in ballots in, all of those sort of mechanics that in the past we always did in person. And now our party loyalists are gonna have to go from, take you know, the messages from this convention and translate them into a different way of talking with and engaging voters. And so I think that that's the next challenge to take this energy that's been generated um, over these last several days and carry that um, into the next several weeks in terms of turning out and continuing to energize the electorate. Okay. And I'd also like to say, just so, so um, uh, Joe Biden is going to be speaking uh, this evening. Um, what, uh, Governor, uh, you said, you know, sometimes it takes a uh, convention to sort of introduce 
people. What does Joe Biden need to say tonight? Or what do you believe would be the best case uh, that, uh, that he could present to the people tonight? Well, I think he has to talk about the future and our economic future and our future for healthcare and healing America. Again, um, restoring the soul of America, um, jobs, the economy. That needs more emphasis today. Uh, we've, we've dealt with a lot of the other issues in the earlier days of this convention, but it still gets down to what's our economic future for families. What, will they have a job? Uh, can, they, can they look to Joe Biden to help restore the economy and yet save and preserve health care and make sure everyone, everyone is treated with dignity? Um, those are kind of the themes. I think he'll rise to the occasion. He has great experience in the areas of, of the economy, manufacturing, jobs, civil rights, other things. So, uh, but I think it has to all look forward. And, and Congresswoman, some have criticized uh, Joe Biden for not being as eloquent a speaker, say as former President Obama, um, that giving speeches might not be his strongest uh, suit. What do you think? It, is, this, is, is this a make or break moment for him? Well, first of all, I don't think any of us should be judged by whether we can give as good a speech as President Obama, because most of us will fail. Um, but I do think that um, tonight, I think Joe Biden, I mean, we've had, you know, kind of an introduction to him uh, again to the American people, because even though he was vice president, still a lot of people didn't know all of his, you know, his story. And we've heard that this week. Uh, we've heard others who have made the case against Donald Trump. Uh, I think that the, um, the vice president, that Joe Biden will understand that most people have already formed their opinion about Donald Trump and about who he is. And what Joe Biden needs to do is focus on who Joe Biden is and his character and his competence. And then I think as Governor Blanchard said, lay out a plan for the future because, you know, you can always, I think Governor Blanchard knows, I think I certainly know as a, you know, as a candidate that you can always find 48% uh, of people who want to vote against the other guy. The question is whether you're gonna get to 50 plus one who want to vote for you. And I think that Joe Biden has to lay out that case uh, to the American people. And in doing that, I think that he's gonna have, that he's gonna succeed. And the Joe Biden that I know is gonna let us all know that he's walked in our shoes and he understands the shoes we walk in. You know, yeah, and I think too, he'll, he'll find a way to reach out to moderates and, and, you know, independent Republicans probably as part of his, theme. But you know, I've listened to Joe. I, I, his first speech ever, that I ever heard give was for me in the backyard in Huntington Woods, Michigan when I was running for Congress. And it was a great speech. It was just too long. I've never heard Joe give a bad speech. Only the problem is he would be long. Uh, and so they've, they, he's been disciplined. And I will tell you that speech the night he won the South Carolina primary which was a watershed moment in this election and will turn out to be, thank you, James Clyburn, maybe creating our next president, hopefully. That speech he gave that night was one of the finest speeches I ever heard from anybody, not just by Joe Biden. So he can do it and he will do it tonight. Excellent. And I'd like to remind our audience to, uh, if, you, if you've got some questions to get ready, uh, we're getting about that time. But um, I just, I just want to, to give you a little bit, both of, both of our speakers, um, just sort of a general assessment. Uh, how, how, how's this convention going? Is it, is it effective? Is, is it impactful? What, what is your view, uh, just broadly? Uh, Congresswoman, if you want to. Well, you know, look, I, you know, the most that I've done is I'm like everybody else. I'm, you know, sitting in my living room or, you know, sometimes because of the lateness of the hour, I'm watching the uh, convention in my bed. Um, but um, 
I feel like it has been an effective convention. I feel like it's conveyed the messages that the campaign uh, wants. I feel like it's laid out, laid the case against the incumbent president. I've always believed that this election was going to be a referendum on Donald Trump, and I think that that's been effective. And I think it has, you know, shown us the future of um, of the nation if Democrats are allowed to take the helm. And so in that sense, I think it's been effective, but what do we know? I mean, most of us are not really leaving our homes. We see what we see on social media. We, you know, read the text messages. I mostly read the text messages from my mother who does a minute by minute assessment of the entire uh, campaign and judging from her comments, you know, she has some critiques, but uh, she thinks it's been a good, uh, a good convention. So, um, we'll know in a, you know, in a couple of weeks, I think, as um, the Republican convention completes and there's a, you know, kind of competing assessment of the two. And more than that, we'll know what it's going to take uh, to get through these next several weeks uh, to turn out a vote because people are going to put the convention in the rearview mirror and it's going to be on to count, you know, making sure that those votes that are going to start to be cast, I think, the um, by Labor Day in some states. So, um, you know, as far as conventions go, I think it's been as effective as one could hope in this environment, and in some instances, with some of the remarks, actually even more effective. Governor, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's been effective. Um, in terms of public impact, you know, we'll see in a few weeks or 10 days, perhaps, I think, you know, the Republicans will have their convention and they will be describing an alternate universe, which is alien to most Americans, but uh, will, will rally his base, which is a moral of a cult. I don't even call it Republican. It's a, it is a strange cult of people who are unhappy about a lot of things. And they have a president who's unhappy about a lot of things. So, but I think our convention is, 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 is in the right tone, positive, youthful, diverse, focused on the big issues of the future. And that's what we're gonna to see tonight. So this, this convention will help us. I just don't know how much. And I'm wondering if there are any uh, audience questions. Uh, and I'm well, not- I Put in something to fill in the gaps until we get, uh, until we get a question. Um, one of the things that I think that we've missed in this conversation are some of the voices of the really young people. I'm talking about young people under age 18 that we've heard from during this convention. And I think that that has been remarkable. Um, the um, young lady talking about her mother being deported. She's the daughter of a, a, you know, a Marine, a mother deported. Um, uh, you know, young women you know, talking about climate and climate change, young people talking about climate change. And I think that those voices have actually been quite inspirational. That's kind of ordinary people. Um, the young woman who was in the elevator um, who uh, introduced um, and nominated uh, Joe Biden. Those are the, to me, those are the faces and the voices that really stand out apart from the political speeches. And I don't know that Republicans have that counterpart. Mm -hmm. I see something in the chat. Uh, okay. Well, we so may have been. <laughs> I'm getting. I'm getting one question here. It's it's a it's a bit long. Um, and it, it really is, is uh, your views on, on the campaign really going forward and, and, and how, um, you know, maybe what, what is it going to take now to, uh, to really get voters out, um, get them, get them uh, energized, um, and, and what sort of next steps, if, if any, that you see? Governor, well, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I think several of the speakers have focused on is this idea of voting. Michelle Obama started out the week uh, talking about uh, voting. 
however it is that you decide to vote, make a plan, um, do the work that it takes to request your ballot, to uh, cast your vote in person, to mail your ballot on time. We saw that theme throughout. Um, we've seen it throughout the convention. And I think the focus afterwards, after the convention is gonna be um, to educate voters in every state about how it is that they can vote and vote safely and to make sure that the mechanisms are in place that enable people to um, fairly cast their votes. And you're gonna see that theme among Democrats, among nonprofit groups um, going out through the election cycle because it's become such a touch point uh, with the attack on the United States Postal Service and um, the attacks on voting rights in, in so many states. Yeah, I think on the Postal Service has really heightened concern about voting and that probably is going to help us even though they may be, well, I know they were initially trying to depress delivery and slow it down. It's been slowed down at least in Michigan and Arlington, Virginia by a couple of days uh, over what it used to be, very recently used to be. So that's a concern. Uh, I will say, you know, that in the toss-up states, they all have vote by mail. Um, and uh, not all of them, but most of them have Democratic secretaries of state, Pennsylvania, for example, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, um, North Carolina doesn't, but they vote by mail and they have a Democratic governor. So that's really going to be important. Is, and my guess is the way they operated with their, their change regulations, if they weren't already with us, I think they're making the letter carriers uh, big supporters of ours for the fall. I think they're going to work overtime to get to get the mail delivered. The key is to get people to vote probably no later than October 15th. They really need to do that. Michigan, we have vote by mail without giving a reason. It was adopted in our Constitution two years ago. Thank goodness. So we're we're pushing push, push on that. That's 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 key. And I'm glad the members of Congress are holding the Postal Service and the Postmaster General, uh, they're, they're holding his feet fire. Great. So I do have a question now. So uh, Dennis Eckert, former ah. congressman from Ohio, has a question about comparing the two conventions. Congressman Eckert, go ahead and unmute your microphone and please ask your question. My former colleague. Got to unmute. Oh, oh, come on, Mr. Eckert. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I was uh, pushing the wrong button. I, I was observing that I don't know of a single human being that could give the speech that Jill gave. In other words, this incredible exposition about the life that has shaped her husband, both as a public servant and as a human being. I can't figure out who they would concoct to do that. But I guess to both Donna and Jim, my question would be this. If America has a better sense of who Joe is, I think that would be a great plus coming out of this convention. But do we not also need to know what Joe will do for America, which is what I still think we have not plumbed the depths of in these last few days. So Donna and Jim, do we need to do more about what Joe is about, not just who Joe is? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting because I think in the month leading up to the convention, you will notice that every single week, um, the Biden campaign began to roll out these really, you know, sort of deep, expansive uh, policy positions on everything from, you know, rebuilding the nation's infrastructure, creating jobs, the climate, um, you know, supporting uh, women in the workforce and in communities. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it has gone below the radar because you have a sitting president of the United States who has a bully pulpit and uses it as a bully every day. And so I think that you're right. That's why tonight, having, you know, laid out all the who Joe Biden is and um, the, uh, the case against um, Donald Trump, which so many of the speakers did so effectively, Tonight, it's Joe Biden's time to say, this is where I want to go, and here's how we're going to get there. And I think because a lot of that groundwork was done through the week, he doesn't have to spend his time, I don't think, 
uh, nor should he attacking uh, the president or um, you know going into any more detail. I'm sure there's going to be a biography video of the uh, former vice president, um, but really going into detail, telling the American people where we want to go from here and how he's going to get us there. Well, it, yes, uh, Dennis, uh, my former colleague, we actually served together. Are you in Ohio now, Dennis? Anyway, he may be muted. Yeah. Uh, I remember talking with my friend, and he's been a close friend, Bill Clinton, after he was in office, and he was, um, he was doing okay, but not as well as he should. And we were riding in a car at an event in Michigan. And he said, what advice do you have? And I said, you know what? You're, you're giving your opinions. You're overexposed. You're on TV every day. You're giving your opinions on every kind of issue that's known to man. If everything is important to you, then some people are going to think that nothing is important to you. And so I think you ought to focus on two or three points. And that would be my advice to Joe, is as he's reintroducing himself and talking about themes. It's really themes that win elections. It really isn't issue positions and platforms. It's, I think if we can do his theme, he may want to have two or three things that he's definitely going to do that but the, the lives of Americans. And I think one of them should be protecting and preserving Social Security and Medicare. Do not take for granted these really important programs to millions of Americans today and millions tomorrow. So important, and I think that's on the line here. I do. And that's one of them, obviously, the health care and the jobs and restoring the soul, which relates to race. And I have another question. Uh, we have a, a question from the call-in uh, line. So they can't ask it live, so I will ask it. Um, they wanted to know what impact this convention and this ticket will have on the down-ballot races. What are the chances of Democrats winning the Senate? Uh, Governor, if you, if you have any thoughts. I think we're going to get control of the Senate, maybe narrow. It could even be by a landslide. We may have... If we, if we could get a landslide election, I, I know I'm not overconfident because I'm telling you, we're ahead in Michigan, but we still got to keep the pedal to the metal. But we're in much better shape in Michigan than we were four years ago for a lot of reasons. But uh, I think it can have great impact down ballot. You just look at the Reagan victory in 1980. You look at the uh, Johnson victory in 1964. Uh, we had huge victories two years ago all around the country as a reaction to Mr. Trump. And the fact that we had really good candidates like Gretchen Whitmer and Alyssa Sotkin and Haley Stevens in Michigan. So it could have great impact. And, and I think we're going to get control of the Senate. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not going to be easy to get things done. But with a, with a Democratic House and Senate, we really have a wonderful opportunity. And so it's really important. And I think there's going to be more straight ticket voting. Uh, we found that in Michigan. You can vote straight ticket. We found that uh, the People are less apt to move around on the ballot. And right now, there are a lot of dissatisfied Republicans. So I'm hopeful, and independents. So I'm hopeful that it's going to be a big day. But it's only if we do all the things we say we want to do between now and November 3rd. Yeah, I mean, I think I generally agree with that. But I do think that, like we saw in, in 2018, with the energy um, of all of those um, those uh, congressional races and local elections, that the down ballot in a lot of states may actually drive the turnout for the top of the ticket. I mean, we're used to seeing the down ballot, you know, go to the, uh, the top of the ticket go down. I think this year is one of these years where uh, for Senate races um, uh, and House seats, that that actually might drive the energy uh, for the top of the ticket. And so I'm looking forward to observing that. I mean, we see in some states um, that there's a lot of energy, for example, in a North Carolina around a, a Senate race, in Arizona in a Senate race that actually could drive the turnout for the, uh, for the top of the ticket. And, um, you know, and I think Democrats maybe narrowly are going to uh, gain the Senate. I think that they are going to grow the majority, frankly, in the House um, if the if we're looking at these races right now, 
And, um, you know, we could be looking at a trifecta. Uh, but, the, you know, the national polls are starting to close as we would expect that they would. And so this is why Democrats can't do what we did in 2016 and just say, okay, that's covered. It's going to be important to work from now until um, election day and even um, beyond to make sure that all those votes get counted. Yes, you know, that's a good point you raised. Uh, in Michigan, we have uh, uh, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, Congresswoman Haley Stevens, for example, who won districts gerrymandered to be Republican. They won them because they're exciting candidates and they had great campaigns. They are really helping uh, generate greater excitement among suburban women, for example, uh, than we otherwise would have. And so I think you're, you're right on with that. Also a, a woman named Hillary Schultz over in Grand Rapids. So this is a big deal. Uh, and in Michigan, um, the Democratic Party has over 250 people working in a field structure, which is all by phone now. We've never had that. So we're organized better than we've ever been. And it's to help the down ballot, but it's just to get people out uh, for the right reasons. And um, I'm, I, that's why I'm optimistic about Michigan for for that reason, but it is, it is, you know, I never would have been elected, by the way, without uh, suburban women, period, or African-American women. And I'm telling you, there is real excitement there, that, and, and Kamala helps that. Well, I'm afraid that is gonna have to be the last word. We have, we have come to the top of the hour, and this has been really an excellent conversation, and I really so much thank you and so much appreciate your time and insights. Uh, you both are, are really expert at this. And so uh, I hope our audience has appreciated it and we appreciate your time.